Okay. All right. So um, just to recap that first two minutes. Uh, the uh, so yeah, we were saying that basically people uh, there are there are major themes or major meta narratives that run throughout all of Scripture. Two of which we've already mentioned are theme of covenant. Another theme is that of kingdom. There's a writer named uh, or a theologian named Christopher Wright, and uh, he wrote a book called The Mission of God, which talks uh, looks at one of the major uh, meta narratives or themes of the Bible is that of mission. How do we read the Bible uh, with a missional or missiological hermeneutic or interpretation? Meaning, what is the purpose in all of Scripture? What is the point? And so the first class was just looking at... Could you get to the next slide? The first class was looking at the big picture of the Bible. And we looked at it. Can you go to the next slide for just for one second? We looked at creation, fall, redemption, glorification. So with that being said, the world is created... And God has a mission uh, in the creation of the world. We go back one, uh, and that mission, and this is kind of what I wrote it out, and this is this is mine, so it's definitely gonna be very flawed. But the mission of God in one sentence that we see in the whole Bible is that God's desire is for the entire world to be filled with people who know, love, and worship Him as they, under His rule, cultivate and enjoy His world as He originally intended it. All right. So to break, and, we, and, and where we look at this is in Genesis chapter one, when God creates man. When God creates man, he, you know some of the the verbs that he uses uh, in Genesis one at the creation of man are he says fill the world. He says this uh, he says this to, to Adam and Eve fill the world. So um, and you know be fruitful and multiply. So increase the number of people. May they expand throughout the world. Um, may they. Um, and may they, uh, you know, may they, you know, live there. And, and keep in mind, this is before the fall. So may they live their lives in communion with me, and fellowship with me, and fellowship with each other. And may they cultivate and enjoy the world um, as I created it. Okay. So that's God's, that's God's original intent is for the world to be filled with people who know and love and worship Him, uh, who live under His rule, and who um, and who enjoy and cultivate creation as He intended. But with that being said, we know that the fall changes that. Because now, because of sin, uh, uh, mankind, uh, people are not naturally in communion with God. Um, People are not naturally in good fellowship with one another. People are not in good fellowship with themselves. And people are not in right relationship with the created order. And so the, God's intention is still the same. His intention is still that the world will be filled with people who love and worship and serve him, who live under his rule. But because of sin, the approach to the mission has changed. And so, um, so we're um, going to look at that a little bit more. Bethany is going to talk about that. Bethany, if you don't know, Bethany is the um, so glad to see um, is the, oh, the missions and outreach director at our church. And um, and so she's going to talk about you know kind of how the fall changes things, um, and then what we're going to go into is I'll give a little snapshot of how the mission of God um, plays out in the Old Testament, um, and so it's re- it's really interesting in my opinion. <laughs> it's really interesting to me. I don't know if the way I teach it will be interesting, but um, you might just want to hold and talk. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Yeah. Slide. <laughs> Um, as Cameron mentioned, I'm the Mission and Outreach Director at the Advent. Um, you can go past this one. This isn't me. 
Um, so I don't know if you can see this. So I'm going to try to describe it. I also want this to be a little interactive because it's Sunday morning um, and we need to, you know, have some talking going on, talking back. Um, so one of the things that Cameron mentioned is that the fall changed things. What did it change? Yeah. Yeah. We might even say it changed everything. Everything. We see we see what the fall affected in broken relationships. We see it in disease. We see it in anything that we look around in the world and say, this isn't the way it should be, right? Um, and so this chart comes from a book that we use in all of our mission trainings called When Helping Hurts. Raise your hand if you've heard of that book. So if you've gone to Nicaragua, then you've gone through the training, and I might... Might ask some of you guys to help me fill in the blanks here, um, but this is what I call the gold nugget of when helping hurts. Um, you can't talk about poverty, you can't talk about mission without recognizing first that there's a problem. And so this chart does a really good job of talking about what God's desire is and then how the fall screwed it all up. Um, so we're going to start with, um, here we are in the middle, okay? So we've got, first of all, going around us, we're not in isolation. We've got all these systems at work that are broken. We have economic systems and political systems, social systems, and even the religious systems. And we recognize in that that those things aren't imperfect. Our government isn't perfect. Um, our churches aren't perfect. Um, that's not a shock to any of us, I'm sure. Um, that everything is broken, all these systems. And then within these systems, we have these individual relationships. So our relationship with God has been changed. Um, one of the things that happened with the fall is that there's now a poverty of spiritual intimacy. So if you'll see up here, what this can look like is people denying God's existence and authority, um, materialism or idolatry. Instead of having God in the right place, we have other things. So we make other things into our idols, usurping the place where God is, should be, and that we worship false gods and spirits. Um, and then also it's affected our relationship with ourself. Um, if you, if you think back to any type of insecurity that you've experienced or any type of pride, that all goes back to the fall has distorted our view of ourself. Um, so not just how we relate to God, but how we relate to ourselves. Do y'all see any examples? You don't have, they don't have to be personal examples, but in your schools, do you see any examples of this broken relationship with self? This is the part where it's interactive. Well, even our uh, inability to face our own, uh, whether it be shortcomings or faults or actual sin, when someone brings it up, yeah, say, man, you could be right. We're immediately offended. Yeah, absolutely. It, our ability to deal with conflict because where is our identity? I feel like if we had a strong sense of identity with God and with self, then when we relate to others, then we wouldn't be so scared. We wouldn't operate out of that fear. But that's what happens because of the fall. Um, and so we see we've got either these God complexes or we have low self-esteem. And sometimes they can be happening at the very same moment. Um, and then we've also have experienced broken relationship with others. Um, we use people for our own ends. Um, we're self-centered um, and we exploit and we abuse others. Um, this can this can be in big deal kinds of ways or in tiny ways. You know, most of the time um, we see this in our family relationships and those closest to us and how we treat them. Um, and then finally, this is probably the most complicated idea, but the broken relationship between the rest of creation. Um, so as Cameron mentioned last week and in the recap, you know, in Genesis, we see two commands that God has given um, Adam and Eve um, to be fruitful and multiply and then also to have stewardship over the rest of creation. So that's our first job. 
Um, and that means that our whole idea of creation is linked to purpose and what we're supposed to do within this earth. Um, and you see two, two ways that this has been distorted. You see it in workaholics and you see it in laziness and entitlement. So both of these are, we don't have a right relationship with work. Now what generally happens among the poor is, um, and, and among the wealthy is the wealthy who tend to be the workaholics, they get a pass on their sin and their brokenness, right? Because there's a lot better benefits. The benefits are money and a better life in lots of ways. Um, and then the poor are viewed as lazy. And so that's a distortion and that, that's their sin. But somehow um, we tend to categorize that sin as worse than our own, which we typically in this room probably fall into being workaholics. Um, so that's just a way to think of how that broken relationship, the stewardship of creation is God gave us a job and it was good. And yet now it's become either something that we don't want to do, that we're tired of. It's something that um, is toilsome labor instead of the gift of being able to steward creation. Um, so if you'll go to the next slide, what this leads to is poverty. And now most of the time when we think about poverty, we think about it in terms of economics or a lack of resources. Um, but what When Helping Hurts looks at really points to what Cameron's gonna talk about later, which is poverty is so much bigger than this. Poverty points to this brokenness. So this is the definition of poverty that we'll use is poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, and they're, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. Now, who knows what shalom means? Lori? Peace. And it's not just like, ah, right? What kind of peace is it? It's, it's this total complete peace. And when we look at this, we see that's God's desire. And because that's not what we see here, we have poverty. Um, and poverty is not just this lack of resources, but it's these broken relationships that affect our relationship with God, with self, with others, and creation. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. That's great. And so, Lauren, would you go back two slides, please? And so, with that being said, as we kind of start to get into the Old Testament, um, another way of thinking about the, uh, the mission of God is to think about uh, God restoring all the negative effects of the fall. And so we see here in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, uh, this is Paul kind of summing up God's purpose in Christ. He says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Okay, what is God's will? What is God's desire? According to his purpose. What is his purpose, which he set forth in Christ? It is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Things are disunited. There is discord between all things and God because of human sin in the garden, because of the fall. And God's desire is to bring everything back into shalom, back into peace and harmony with God. Creation, mankind, our relationships with people, our relationships with ourself. ourself okay? And so that's ultimately what he's gunning for in Jesus. Now, how in the Old Testament does he, does he lead up towards that? So that's what we're going to see. So first off, um, great, thank you. We see the creation mandate. I've already talked about this, but, but basically, you know, we see that God blessed Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. And so then, as we go forward a few chapters, we see that the flood, right? The world was in total disorder. God sends the flood. And you have Noah and his family. And what is it that he says to Noah 
um, after everything is over. After you know, there's been the flood, they've survived, the waters have gone down, it's time to go out and start over. He says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So you can see his purpose being reiterated here with Noah. Something interesting, does anybody know what the next story is? There's a, there's, we've got Noah, and then, and then a few chapters later, two chapters later, is going to be Abraham. Does anybody know the story in between? Not that one. <laughs> Tower of Babel. Okay, and so in the tower, everyone's coming together in this one city. They're all kind of congregating in this one place. They're building a tower to the sky. There are a lot of problems with this, but one of the, you know, and then God says, no way, Jose. He, you know, foils their problems. They all start speaking different languages. And what happens as a result of this? They disperse. They go out. And so in a sense, you can interpret that story as saying, God intends to for them to be going out and filling the earth, okay? The next story, then, is Abraham. And this is critical. This, some people say this is the beginning of redemptive history in the Bible because what God is doing is he is creating a people that are his people, the people through whom he is going to fulfill his mission. And the people, what's the name, uh, a student, what's the name of the people in the Old Testament that, God, that are God's people that he uses for his purposes? That's right, the Israelites of the Jews. That's great, okay? What's the people, who are the people in the New Testament? That's right, that's right. It's all, it's, it's Christians, it's the church, okay? And so, with that being said, um, God says to Abraham, he says, or Abram, in, in this, in this uh, occasion, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, kind of like he says to Noah, kind of like he does with Adam and Eve, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You'll be a blessing to the nations. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? So again, this like international, all of the earth, all people mentality and concept is, is being reiterated again. Okay? God's desire for all the earth, all the nations to know and love and worship, uh, worship God. All right. So that's kind of this is kind of the beginning of the Israelites. And you know the story continues. They go down into what country are they in slavery? High school student. Egypt. Good. And who leads them out? Um, Moses. That's right. Okay. Great. Keep on going. And so God delivers them. And then you know while they're in the desert, God gives them something very important. Yes, He gives them the Ten Commandments. And he gives them all the law. So like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there are, there are lots and lots of laws. And has anyone ever kind of read through um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and read some of the funny laws? They, you know, they seem kind of weird. We don't really get them. But here's the thing. Like they have a purpose because God's purpose is that these people would be a light to the nations, that they would actually draw and attract people to God. And so there's this word, um, I don't think I have it on the slide, but there's this word, and that is God's people in the Old Testament are meant to be centripetal, centripetal. In the New Testament, they're meant to be centrifugal, 
Okay, we'll talk about that next week more. But what we mean by that is in the New Testament, we, you know, if you, anybody heard the sermon this morning, Andrew was talking about how we are to go out. We are to make disciples of nations. We are to share the gospel. Okay? It wasn't quite like that in the Old Testament. The, the intention in the Old Testament is that the Israelites were intended to attract people to God by the way they lived. Um, they, they were to be such a witness of justice, have such kindness to the poor, such care for the weak, such moral, being such, so morally pure, to be uh, people who worshiped one God, monotheistic. They, they were true to one God, and they were to see this uniquely gracious and merciful God. Okay, and, and in that, they were meant to attract people to God. It was meant to, to be, centrifugal means you're, you're kind of pulling things in. Centrifugal is like you're going out, okay? So they're meant to draw people in. And so here, um, this is kind of a, almost like a mission statement within the law, embedded in all these things like the Ten Commandments and worship laws and, and then political laws about, you know, uh, how you're supposed to settle arguments or what you do if someone's cow runs onto your land and you know uh, laws about how you're to deal with the poor, how you're to deal with immigrants, how you deal with orphans and widows. And he says, now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you're faithful, Israel, if you're faithful, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, all nations. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be a special nation, okay? And so in that, you'll be a witness. You'll be a witness. You will draw people in. And so as, we, as you read through the law, um, sorry, sorry, skipping ahead, just a reiteration of this. This is Isaiah 43. This is one of the prophets. He kind of echoes the same sentiment. He says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. He's talking about Israel in, in, at the end of Isaiah uh, God uh, or Isaiah, God, God's word talks about you know my servant. Sometimes he's talking about a future Messiah, Jesus, and sometimes he's referring to Israel as a nation as my servant. And so he says, "You are my witnesses," declares the Lord, "and my servant whom I have chosen." So you are meant to be a witness to testify to me, Yahweh, this holy one God, this loving and gracious God, this good and kind God. And, and you're, you're, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, that I am, I am that God. Before me there no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior, declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. So basically, you're meant to be a witness to the nations of who I am, and you're to draw them in. Okay, and so with that being said, we see a similar kind of thing in Psalms, a similar idea that you're to be a witness to the nations. By the way, if you want to do something, and this, by the way, I'm going to say this is cool. You might think it's cool, maybe you're not. But if you want to do something really interesting, go to Bible Gateway and put in the word like nations and then just select the Psalms and see how frequently God talks about his desire that all nations know him. It's like unbelievable. There are are um, 75 like sections that are dedicated to that in the Psalms. There are 150 Psalms. So with that being said, Psalm 22, which a lot of us know is the Psalm that's about kind of the suffering servant on the cross. But at the end it says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So you can see this, again, international desire of God that all nations, even in the Old Testament, that all nations would know and love and worship Yahweh, who's you know the God of the the God that you know of the Old Testament, the God that we worship, the Triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right. So anyhow, so that point has been made pretty clearly. You're meant to be a witness to the nations. God's desire to draw in the nations to Himself. And so the um, I've already explained centripetal. Yeah, I get to the next. Thanks. Okay. So the elements of the centripetal witness. And there's one I left out. But one is the Israelites, God's people, were intended to be so morally pure that it would like stand out to people. That, that they would say, wow, there's something, there's something different about these folks, right? Um, they were meant to worship just one God. Most nations were polytheistic, which means they had all kinds of gods. So there was a rain god they would worship, and there was a fertility god that they would worship, and there was a sun god that they would worship, and so on and so forth. So it was unique it was very, very unique that they only worshipped one God and that they believed that this God was the creator of heaven and earth. So that was another part of their unique witness. Um, they were meant to have a just society. You know, there are things in our society because we, I mean, because our nation, has, we live in the West and there's a lot of Christian influence, but that we take for granted, like just legal practices that we take for granted. Uh, and they, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of injustice that needs to be corrected, but... Certain things like you've got, to, you've got to be fair to people. You've got to respect people's property. You cannot take advantage of, of the weak and the poor, and so on and so forth. So there, it was meant to be a just, fair society, and you see that in the civil laws of Israel. Um, they were meant to be compassionate and helpful to the poor. And this also is unique. Like, listen, compassion for the poor comes out of Judaism and Christianity. It is a unique, originating idea that comes out of Christianity and Judaism. Yes, it is very common. It is very common in our world because of the Christian influence in the world. But this was, this was not something anyone else in the whole world was doing. When the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was around, and when God was delivering his law to the people. So this would have been like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like one of the laws of Israel was when you farmed, you had to leave 10% of your harvest on the stalk so that poor people could just come to your land and could take food. All right? So it was, almost, it was like a government welfare system. And that was like very, very unique in that world. Um, you were supposed to give a certain amount of your money to, to, like, to the temple for the sake of the poor. And so they were, you, when you read through uh, the Old Testament, you see a huge part of the witness of the nation of Israel was their compassion and their help for poor people. They were also, also their care for the weak. Um, you see that in the Old Testament it says, like, you've got to take care of widows. Because widows, like, they didn't have any way to defend themselves, they didn't have a way to provide for themselves. You've got to take care of orphans. Like, people who've lost their fathers, they're vulnerable. Um, you've got to take care of immigrants. Like, foreigners, I, I mean, it's in there. And, and so, with that being said, people who are vulnerable, they were mandated to do this, all right? And so, with all this, and, and, and all this flowed out of the unique character of God. The God of Israel, the God, the Father of Jesus, is uniquely merciful and gracious, um, full of compassion, 
Um, I, if I were better, I could quote the, uh, you know, uh, Exodus, Mount Sinai. Can someone help me, someone who's a better Bible student than me, where it says, um, you know, the Lord, the Lord, full of compassion and grace. Will not leave the guilty unpunished. Um, Sorry, Sorry. No, no, but it's in there. But basically, like, like their sins will fall on, like, a limited number of, their, of the further generations, but his grace will fall on like hundreds of generations after. So you see, he's holy, just, and gracious, but he has a unique character. And so all of this flows out of the unique character of God. All right? Okay, so now here's the deal, though. The problem is that how, how successful is Israel? Complete epic failure. Complete failure. As soon as they get into the promised land, like you read the book of Judges, the book of Judges, like, you cannot read until you're like 16 years old because it is so violent. It is so like sexually bizarre. It is so dark. It, it really is out of control. And, um, and so with that being said, you see that Israel is not obedient. And you see like, you know, David was a pretty good king, although he blows it. Solomon was okay for a little while. He blows it, and then it's pretty much just a disaster. Like, if you read the Old Testament, you see that Israel completely fails to draw people to God through their, um, you know, through their witness. And so that's what, when you read the prophets, what you start to see in the prophets is the prophets, first off, they rebuke Israel. They say, Israel, you're not worshiping God like you're supposed to. Israel, you're not, you're not being morally upright. Israel, you're not taking care of the, you're not taking care of orphans, you're not taking care of widows, you're not taking care of the poor, and then they point to a Messiah, a new king who will come, who will do what Israel is not able to do. All right. And so, with that being said, we're kind of running out of time. Um, I'm just going to read this real quickly. But Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament, and you see these themes throughout. I mean, throughout all the prophets, but. This is a good example of kind of that dualistic, those two themes of the prophets of like, hey, Israel, you've blown it. You're not, you're not fulfilling the mission of God. And oh, God's going to send his son to do it. He's going to send someone who will. God himself will come. He says, behold, he's pointing to the Messiah here in this first half. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. He's talking about John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So God himself will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of the Lord and who can stand when he appears? For he will come like a refiner's fire. I'm going to skip this. Um, and so basically he's talking about God himself and the person of Jesus will come. He says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and wages, take advantage of immigrants, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord. So he's kind of saying, here's where you failed, and here's the solution that I'm going to send. All right? And so with that being said, sorry, last little thing here. This is another messianic prophecy. We'll, we'll run, we'll, sorry, we're going to run five more minutes. Um, this is David getting a picture of the Messiah. He says, I saw in the night a vision, behold, in the clouds, there came one who was like a son of a man, son of man. He came to the ancient of days. He was presented before him. He's talking about Jesus. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So he is saying this, this hope that all the nations will come to God and know and love and worship him, 
he's saying it will be accomplished in this Son of Man. What is the way that Jesus refers to him the most in the Gospels? He refers to himself as the Son of Man the most. So with that being said, applications, and you and I, you can jump in for this too. Yeah. Um, first off, first lesson from this I would say is that the way we live matters. Like our life is meant to be an attractive witness to draw people to God. Um, and that, you know, uh, that's just, um, that's hard. You know, that's hard, but that's true, you know? And so, um, you know, Andrew talked today about about the, the, the old quote, like, um, that's falsely and incorrectly and historically attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the, go- the gospel always when necessary, use words, like, Francis never said that, but it, it, it are, we are meant to share the gospel in our life and through our words. It needs to be both. Because, I mean, we all know, I, there's this one preacher who was a phenomenal preacher out in Seattle. He's no longer preaching because he got in some big trouble. But um, he, you probably know what I'm talking about, uh, Matt. But, um, but he was just the biggest jerk. He was the biggest jerk. His, what he said was phenomenal. What he said was phenomenal. But as a person, he was unethical. He was arrogant. He was mean. He was rude. And I just never wanted to listen to him. And so with that being said, like, especially high school students, like, it is, in, in terms of how you live morally, in terms of your, you know, your kindness, in terms of not being judgmental, um, in terms of, like, caring about matters, like, caring for the poor, caring for things of justice, like, these are different ways that God can use you to be a witness to draw people to Jesus. And finally, I say, my second application is, we have no hope of being an attractive witness without Jesus. Like, we're like the Israelites. We are the Israelites. Like, we fail miserably all the time. And so as a result of that, we just if we're going to be a witness, it's because of Christ in us. It's because the Holy Spirit enables us to do things that we cannot do in our flesh, out of our own power. So that's my route. How about you? I think that's good. Um, you sure? Do you have any questions about applications? I think after next week, we might have more time to talk. But, um, but yeah, I, I like to think about it in terms of that chart, and we'll come back to that next week too, that if Christ's desire, if God's desire is through Christ to reconcile all of those relationships, then we're in this place that theologians call the already, but the not yet, where we have this promise of this fulfillment that through Christ all these things will be reconciled, that there will be perfect harmony and perfect shalom in our relationship with God, with self, with others, and creation. And so the When Helping Hurts authors talk about this phrase called anticipatory deeds. And so it's basically the, the, the actions that we take leaning into this promise of reconciliation. Uh, it's, so it's asking the question not what, what should I do here, but what is this promise that I'm looking forward to? What will this relationship look like? And then how can I do things that look more like in line with what, what Christ has promised that will be fulfilled. So. Yeah. And could you say just in, as far as like as a church, the importance of the mission in terms of us being a witness? Or do you want to wait till next week? Next week. That's lovely. Next week. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> let me pray for us and, um, and then we'll let you get. All right, Jesus, thank you uh, for including us in your mission. And Father, we confess that we, we do want to be faithful, um, but we're just not very good at that. Um, in fact, we're, we're really, really bad at it. So we, uh, I just ask that you would be gracious to us. You would help us and um, you would give us a heart for, for, uh, for your mission and that you would bless us with the humility to just call on your Holy Spirit for grace to help us in it. So trust you, Jesus. Ask these prayers in Christ's name. Amen.